You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 61 of the Common Descent Podcast. Woohoo! We're getting up there. Today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to. For today, we are going to discuss behavior in the fossil record. A very cool, very broad subject. This is a, this is a really interesting, because it, it applies to anything that's ever fossilized. Like, any animal that's ever fossilized, there's potential behavior to interpret so or at least to try to figure out we're going to dive into that a little bit today this was suggested by jonathan via gmail so thank you jonathan for this suggestion and the plan for today is not so much to tease out the behavior of any fossil animals because there's too many too many examples too many talks to cover instead we're going to go through how do we determine or or at least get ideas, get suggestions for the behavior of these fossil organisms? Right. What are what are the ways that we can go beyond just these are some bones, this is an, an imprint, this is a shell? Like how do we get to, to understanding how these creatures were doing what they did? Absolutely. So we're not gonna go through and I don't know, for instance, talk about who was and wasn't a scavenger or anything like that this episode. <laughs> that's not the plan today. That's that's a that's maybe from, some maybe some other yes, episode. That's a full uh, discussion for later. What we're gonna do is kind of a uh, the best hits of how we study ancient behavior. Should be fun. It's gonna be a bit of a dino heavy episode prepare because that's what everyone always wants to know about, and they have some of the best examples. But yeah, and we get a lot of dinosaur requests, so that it's always good to throw dinosaurs in there. And dinosaurs are cool. They're pretty cool. But quick announcements before we get into the episode. As is tradition, if you sign up on our Patreon, which is paying for basically all of our costs of the podcast now. Oh, yes. If you sign up at a certain level, we will shout your name out here on the podcast to thank you. And we have some new patrons to welcome to the Baskin Coil. So welcome, Belladonna. Bavna, and our final patron asked us to dedicate it to Tamerlan, their son. Yes, welcome everybody. Thank you for your support. We greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. And another bit of announcement. We have a new little miniseries, just a very short miniseries, coming yes. up next month. Remember when we did that Jurassic Park series last year, everybody? When the new movie came out? Silver Screen Science. And who said... That was awesome, but what if you did it, but with bigger things? <laughs> There's another movie coming out soon. <laughs> so we will be starting on the 1st of June, the Silver Screen Science series, Kaijun. Yes, because here at the end of this month, there's a new one of them Godzilla movies. Which I'm very excited for. Boy, do we have thoughts. And so we're going to talk about them big <laughs> monsters. Every Saturday in June, just like the Jurassic Park series last time, we'll be releasing a silver screen science about big, crazy monsters. So yeah, check in then. Yes. One more announcement that I want to make. So back in our other series last year, Spotlight, we met up with Adrian Lamb, who is one of the co-founders of the website Time Scavengers, which does all sorts of cool stuff, lots of great information. The other founder... 
Her partner in uh, Time Scavengers is Jen Bauer, who has not been on the podcast, but whom we have spoken to in the past. And I just wanted to give a shout out to an excellent new post that Time Scavengers has put up on their blog, which was, uh, this is something that I've discussed with all sorts of people. Jen and I had, had discussed it at one point. It is a blog post devoted to answering the question, how do you become a paleontologist? Which is one of the most common questions that I get, that we get on the podcast, yeah. definitely. We get this all the time. Jen took that question and went out and went, went out to the internet and surveyed 125 paleontologists and put together data on what their answers were, what their paths to paleontology were. And the blog post goes through all the questions on the survey. It's got graphs in it that show you how common certain responses were. It's got advice from paleontologists. It basically, as we've said on this podcast before, there is no one way to do it. If you are looking for a, a swath of data on this, check that out. We'll put a link in the episode description. It's super cool. Way to go, Jen. Everyone should check it out. That's so awesome. And such a, a paleontologist way to answer that question. And I love it. Yes. Here's here's 125 <laughs> cases of data for you. <laughs> We've got some data on that. And with that, we will wrap up our announcements to move on to the news section. Every episode, we like to go through the recent news articles that pertain to fossils, evolution, paleontology, and other cool pertinent sciences and bring them to you so that we can all stay up to date. And to start us off, I will hand over the mic to my good friend, David Moscato. Well, thanks. You know, I've become the guy that does the human evolution stuff. Yeah, we've fallen into, news. like, by accident, some yep. some uh, tropes of our own, which is interesting. And I cannot resist talking <laughs> about news about Denisovans. If you don't know who the Denisovans are, go back and listen to episode 18. 18b specifically but we've mentioned them in the news a whole bunch denisovans are an ancient group of hominins late pleistocene hominins which is to say within the last tens to hundreds of thousands of years denisovans are one of the types of human that lived alongside us and neanderthals and so on but what has always been super interesting about denisovans is that all we've had from them has been a pinky bone three teeth and then a little sliver of bone from an, another specimen, all from a cave in Siberia. Now, if you are a patron and you listen to our bonus news on Patreon, we did mention another potential piece of Denisovan that was talked about at a conference recently. So all of the data we have on Denisovans is pre pretty much all of it is genetic. Yes. We haven't identified them morphologically. We haven't been able to give them a new species name. It's just that they are a genetic lineage that is not Homo sapiens and not Neanderthals. Yeah, they're gen they're definitely genetically different, but that's as yes. much as we've been able to say. But here's a new study that has identified for the first time, oh my goodness, a Denisovan jaw. Which, of all the pieces to find, awesome. Oh man, whole jaw. So this is research by Fahu Chen et al. in Nature, because of course it's in Nature. <laughs> we'll link to an article on The Atlantic by Ed Yang. This fossil comes from Xiahe County in China, right at the edge of the Tibetan Plateau. So more than 10,000 feet above sea level. Wow. Way high up there. It is exciting for a number of reasons. 
It is the oldest hominin remain from the Tibetan Plateau at about 160,000 years old. It is 1,500 miles from Denisova Cave. Oh, wow. This is a crazy range extension for this group of hominins. And, of course, it's a jaw. A whole half. It is the right half of the lower jaw of a Denisovan. Identified not from DNA, because they looked for DNA in it and didn't find any, but from collagen proteins, oh. which they were able to compare with other Denisovan samples. This fossil was actually discovered way back in 1980. It was donated to, uh, uh, to Lanzhou University and sat around for a while <laughs> until people finally in this study took a look at it and went, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's Denisovan. That's crazy. What's really cool about it is that it does have unique morphology. It is robust and sturdy. It has no chin. Chins are a homo sapiens thing. It has a unique tooth shape that is apparently unique to the Denisovans. And it suggests that Denisovans were much more widespread than their fossil record so far has indicated. So this puts them at way down on the Tibetan Plateau. It puts them on the Tibetan Plateau very early. So humans, homo sapiens, have been on the Tibetan Plateau for something like 40,000 years. Mm -hmm. This is 120,000 years earlier than that. Wow. Which makes them the oldest known hominins on the Tibetan Plateau, which suggests that they adapted to that crazy high elevation way before we ever did, which lines up perfectly with this all these genetic data that we've had so far with the people of Tibet who are adapted to living at high elevations share certain genetic markers with the Denisovans that are thought to be shared adaptations, probably gained through interbreeding. Oh, wow. There's also Denisovan DNA widespread throughout Asian people today, which suggests that there was a connection in that region back when the Denisovans were still around. Mm -hmm. So the bones and the genetics are starting to paint this united picture of this widespread group across Asia. And who knows, maybe soon we'll actually be able to identify them morphologically and give them a new species name or something. Oh, wow. That is so cool. It's The range extension is fantastic because I think, I, I can't remember if it was last news or bonus news or when it was, but I remember there was a moment where we were discussing the fact that obviously they had to range outside of that cave. Like, yes, that that's not how species work. <laughs> we, we all live in this cave. <laughs> Never not be afraid. <laughs> but it's, that's an awesome... It's it's awesome to find new stuff and it extend their range by a significant amount to really support. They were, they were out there in the world. But also, anytime I hear about a really crazy find just sitting in a collections for a amount of time, I, I am both like uh, awed by that, of that such an amazing little story, but I'm also always terrified by that concept because it's like what if it had gotten misplaced and moving or yeah. knocked over or like and surely huh. they have yeah yep. just i don't even want to think about it but that's that's really an exciting new chapter in the whole denisovan story and i mean now we've got a jaw i mean there's surely there's more to come so i can't wait to put it's it's so cool to have been here from the beginning of this story yes to have seen, because it was like 10 years ago that the mm -hmm. first Denisovan pieces were identified, just being able to watch us slowly put together the picture of these ancient hominins. So cool. 
really cool. Well, speaking of a new fossil for a weird group, I want to talk about the newest member of the bat-winged dinosaurs. <gasps> yeah. So we're going to talk about Ambopteryx. So this is research by Min Wong et al. in Nature, and the article will be linked to is by Riley Black in Smithsonian Magazine. So a while back in 2015, some of you might remember the discovery of Yi Chi, the yeah. Chinese small, this was a little, you know, chicken pheasant dish sized dinosaur, but it was unique. It had feathers, but it had not formed feathered wings. Instead, this excellently preserved fossil show that it had bat or pterosaur-like membranes from the edge of its body down the arm, supported by the fingers and by a weird extra little splint off the wrist that formed little dragon wings off the side of this dinosaur. <laughs> Feathery and bat-like. And it, it... At the same time. Made the news all over because, oh my goodness, a potentially second way that dinosaurs almost or may have evolved flight. Yeah. That's a big deal. Well, now we have two. Now we have a new member to this group. Ambopteryx longibrachium is a new member, still China, dating back 163 million years ago. Best fossil in this family so far, it is described. So very detailed. And it also has these bat pterosaur-like wings. And this is just a very interesting finding that there was a group who were going a extremely alternate route to the, you know, quote unquote classic route of evolution in dinosaurs toward a flighted bird. These two are not likely, or at least according to the current understanding, they don't think that they were probably capable of flapping flight. So okay. they they are interpreting them right now as gliders, but... You know, they, there's still more that needs to be looked into these to see how many features might they have shared with other, you know, proto-flying bird ancestors or close cousin dinosaurs. Like, what other features did they share that might show how far along the line toward flight they were? So this is, there's not a lot of, like, giant revelation. It's just, oh my gosh, another one, another weirdo is really what this article is emphasizing. There are some things they want to test. There's more tests to be done. This is the initial uh, unveiling. Unfortunately, one of the tests they would like to do but aren't able to is looking at the brain morphology to see if it shares features with flighted dinosaurs. But the skull is crushed. Aww. It's flattened. So they can't look at that. But we have gotten a little insight into diet because inside the body mm. cavity were preserved gizzard stones and some bone fragments now gizzard stones for all of you are stones that certain animals birds crocodilians and sauropods and stuff like that swallow to help them grind food and they found little bone fragments in with that which suggests that this was very likely an omnivorous dinosaur that's coupled with research on the teeth of ambopteryx so it looks like this was a little gliding you know, critter going around just grabbing what it could somewhere in the forest. I love this dinosaur. <laughs> I think we talked back in episode 37 about how aerial capabilities showed up multiple times in dinosaurs. Yes, it did. That you had gliding appears to have arisen at least a few times. And it's just so cool to see that there were not only numerous 
different methods that, that came about, but numerous successful methods. Yes. Like this was a group of dinosaurs that had evolved this method and were at least somewhat widespread with it. Mm-hmm. It's... Which is very cool. Just an ins- a cool insight to have into their there's the complexities of this development. Well, it's it's like watching evolutionary prototyping where they're like, all right, yes. I need five designs that might be able to get us into the air by the end of the millennia. You know, like it's it's yes. and this was the the weird group that came up with something odd, but it turned out to work. I make the motion that we we write Hollywood and from now on when they put dragons in movies, they base them off of Yichi and Ambopteryx because oh, come yeah. on. Oh yeah. There it's right there for you. The blueprints. Yeah, dragon wings. They're feathered, which dragons should just be feathered. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Let's give them some give, give them some some ornamentation. It's why not make them a little more accurate and cuddlier at the same time? I say <laughs> win-win. <laughs> Very nice. Well, I'm going to take us back to some more recent stuff with some research from Middle America, some insights into the late Pleistocene in between North and South America, and research out of one of the most interesting, fascinating fossil sites that I've ever heard of. This is research by a a very familiar name, Blaine Schubert et al. I know him. Yeah, we know that guy. Uh, he is here at the Gray Fossil site. He was Will's advisor. Yes, he We've was. talked about Blaine a couple times. And, and a shout out to Blaine's dad, who, as far as I know, still listens to all of our episodes. Hello, Blaine's dad. Hi. Blaine Schubert et al. in the journal Biology Letters. We will be linking to a press release put out by ETSU. There are no bylines in a press release, usually. It's just the institution. So you don't, you, you, you never really know who wrote it, but it comes out of the institution. But I can tell you, I wrote it, at least mostly. <laughs> but this so time, you know it's good. we've got some insider information. For the last several years, those of us who know Blaine have heard him talking about this site that he's been working on down in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. He's in the middle of the jungle, and the site is in a cave. So this is a site called Oyo Negro, which means black hole. Allow me to paint you a picture. <laughs> in the tropical peninsula, right? Yucatan, in the jungle out there, there's a hole that opens up into a waterway. And you go down into the water and you discover that what it is is a completely sunken cave system. So the divers go down and then they go through this horizontal passage that was the cave. And they swim through this horizontal passage like any normal cave. And then they come across a section of the floor of that passage that opened up into a pit. This is a pit that opened in the floor of a cave, and then the entire system got flooded. So that now the pit, which is full of fossils, at its bottom is 130 feet underwater. Jeez. So to get the fossils... And Blaine has described this to me. He sits on this dock that they have all the stuff set up and the expert cave divers go in and vanish into the darkness for a while, down the passage, down into this hole, find the fossils, go back to Blaine and the paleontologists up there, show them all the pictures they took, and then they decide what they want to get out of the the pit, Mm -hmm. which fossils they want to find. And then they send them back to very carefully and, like, strategically pull the fossils up. It's insane. 
It's so cool. And what makes it even better is that these fossils are gosh darn beautiful. <laughs> to give you an idea, when the every now and then, so Kila at the museum here, mm-hmm. at the, the Gray Fossil Site Museum, will work on prepping some of these. And she'll be sitting there in a lab that is full of gray fossil site fossils. Gray fossil site, one of the best fossil sites in the world. Mm-hmm. There is an entire mastodon in that lab. Yes. The whole skeleton is there getting re- being put back together. And people will walk past Keela's station and look at her fossils and go, wow, those are real pretty. <laughs> it's insane how well-preserved these fossils are. That's so crazy. I also love this because... What you just described, I think, is the closest paleontology has ever gotten to what NASA has to deal with. Of All right. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. Go check it out. I'll wait. <laughs> we'll wait to hear back from you. All right. Now do this. <laughs> <laughs> so the fossils in there date from... The oldest ones date to around 40,000 years ago. The youngest are around 13,000, 12,000 years ago. The fossils include ground sloths, saber-tooths, uh, tapers, gompatheres, <gasps> which were uh, shovel-tusked elephants, which were apparently wandering through this cave. Oh, that's awesome. Probably looking for water, Blaine tells me. Also in the cave uh, uh, deposits, Naya, the most complete early human in the Americas. What? So this was, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. The new paper... That Blaine just published, which I think is the first big paper published uh, about this deposit, identifies two fossil predators. A bear, Arctotherium wingii, and a canid, a a wolf coyote relative, Protocyon troglodytes. Now, what's really (laughs) interesting about these two uh, species, these two animals, is that they've both been found elsewhere. These are not new species. They have only ever been found in South America. Arctotherium is famously the the biggest bears ever were Arctotherium from deep down in South America. Yes. This is a much smaller member of the group. Both of these have only been known from South America. This is a range extension of over 1,200 miles. Wow. Finding them in the Yucatan and Mexico. It's real exciting because Middle America fossils are rare. It's exciting because it means that these animals were more widespread than we thought. And it's really interesting because it raises a question about the path these animals took into South America. Oh, yeah. So back in episode 43, we talked about the Great American Biotic Interchange. Starting around 3 million years ago, North America and South America became connected again across the Isthmus of Panama, and they started exchanging species. One of the major groups that South America received in the exchange was bears and dogs. Carnivory, yeah, bears, dogs, cats, etc., raccoons and such. Yes. So it was long thought that the bears and dogs moved down, Arctotherium and Protocyon evolved down there and stayed down there. Mm-hmm. But this finding suggests that either they evolved down in South America and moved back up north later, mm-hmm. or they were there the whole time. Yeah. That they showed up, they evolved farther north, and then spread down but stuck around in middle america yeah they left behind populations as they moved down yeah so the story of the dispersal of these groups 
is apparently more complicated than we thought, and the evidence is coming out of the most ridiculous fossil site that I've ever met a person who has worked on it. Yeah, I mean, now we know it's inside a black hole, which is awesome fossils. Great fossils. There you go. That's so cool. I love this, not only for the awesome fossils, but like just the oddness of where awesome fossils can be found. Like, you know, every, like, there's, there's part of you that would, to me at least, kind of assume that's like, all right, this cave, which are really great for fossils, got flooded. Oh, okay, well, moving on to the next one. Right. And no, no, evidently, go check, because awesome fossils. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, that's just one of those, now, now you have to check all the deep holes filled with water. <laughs> it's like when you play a video game. And you go into like a little space and you find a hidden item and you go, and you, oh, I've passed like eight And of you these. check a trash can. <laughs> and you check, oh, I've been checking trash cans for 20 years. I've been checking those trash cans. <laughs> yep. That's exactly what it's like. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. So this is super, and there's going to be more coming out of this. Like Blaine's still working on it. I've seen some of the fossils that are coming out of this place. I can't talk about them because I'm pretty sure a lot of it's still embargoed. But whoo, stay tuned. That's so cool. Awesome stuff. Well, I'm I'm going to actually loop back up kind of to my first news, but this is going to help us lead into our topic because I'm going to talk about a robotic dinosaur that helped us learn a little bit of how flapping flight might evolve. We got dinosaurs. We got robots. We got we got all your good stuff. What more could you ask for? This is research by Yaser Talori at all in close computational biology. And the article we'll be linking to is by George Dvorsky in Gizmodo. So rewind back to the evolution of flight episode. Episode six. Back at our beginning, we talked about two general hypotheses for evolution of bird flight, at least. You know, there's arguments for this, these and other groups as well. But this, it's usually talked about with birds and it's the tree down and ground up hypotheses. Did they start as gliders in the treetops, gliding around from up above and then eventually flapping? Or did they start on the ground, flapping around as they ran and jumped, and eventually taking off? This model is kind of looking at the ground-up hypothesis and how the mechanics of that might have functioned. So they used a dinosaur that is Caudipteryx. Caudipteryx. Caudipteryx, thank you. Caudipteryx. As their model, this is a small, just 11 pound, they estimate, dinosaur from about 130 million years ago. And it's considered one of the most basal or, you know, early primitive non-flying dinosaurs that's still equipped with feathered, quote unquote, proto wings. Yeah, they kind of have almost like an ostrich. Yeah. They had, they de- they're definitely wings, but they're not for flying. Yeah, like, like it's, they've definitely got little, wings there but it's still a terrestrial dinosaur uh likely a good runner estimates for its speed and we'll talk about things like estimating speed in just a little <laughs> bit is estimated at like 26 feet per second which is eight meters per second which should be i forgot to do that one into miles but in a number of miles that's, per hour yeah, that's pretty good speed there's quick little dinosaurs so they did a mathematical approach first and they looked at the mechanical effects of running on parts of the dinosaur's body and 
those initial uh, predictions suggested a passive flapping motion of the arms that would occur around speeds of 8 to 19 feet per second. So hmm. within a certain speed of its running, there's the bouncing of the body causes the wings to flap up and down. Just It just happens naturally it's, as they're running. It's kind of how like we reflexively swing our arms. Like You can run mm-hmm. without swinging your arms, but it, it's part of our natural running motion because it balances us and all that good stuff. Right, right. So this is potentially suggesting that that passive flight that that passive flapping could potentially give way to flight. Yeah, if it was already part of the running motion, now it's started. Absolutely. That it could have been uh, basically training the dinosaur for powered flapping. And if that, you know, just more muscle was put into that. They don't think that these flaps were creating lift necessarily. They don't think these flaps were causing any sort of flight. But... The initial model showed that there would be. So they wanted to test it further. So they did two cool things. One, they made a robot. Robot. They made a robot that is a running robot based on the dimensions of Caudipteryx. A robo-Caudipteryx. And it had mobile little wings, little proto-wings, that when it started running at speed would hopefully, or not hopefully, but according to the mathematics, would start flapping if those mathematics were correct. But they went a step further and made similar little protoween models and put them on a baby ostrich to use a modern running dinosaur as a test model. And when both these robo and modern dinosaurs ran, the wings flapped. So they saw proto-flapping passive movement in the wings. What a cool, we call this, uh, um, well, there's a name for this and I can't think of it right now. Validation. We call this validation. Yes. We made a model on the computer. Then to test it, we built a robot. And then to test that, we've tested an actual living creature. Like three lines of of independent evidence. Very cool stuff. Very awesome. Now, before we we go off to the races, there have, has been some concern brought up. By, by paleontologists outside of the study. Uh, Dennis Voten is the one they quote in the article, is concerned because, in their opinion, the robot failed to take the actual shoulder anatomy into consideration. It made a simplistic version of the joints that was musculatured by springs, not mm. any sort of you know muscle that could be moved at will. You know, so right, right, right. Not was, like a natural skeletal structure and so this as they quote it uh he was as um there we this as they were quoted this made it as they were quoted impossible to visualize any skeletal behavior that would have accommodated the motions during life so okay, they're so. they're worried that it it was a slightly too simplistic uh kind right, of right it's not saying that it's wrong and i think they were even quoted later in the article saying they actually do like and they do think that they're probably on the right track, but that that robot was not a sufficient final answer. Right. That's not the last word on the subject. Exactly. So making some better shoulders might give us a better answer. So hopefully there will be more, more, more 
more models, more robots. I was, was going to say, let's, let's all say what we want there to be more of. More robots. More robots. More dinosaur robots. I'm just saying <laughs> more dinosaur robots. It can't hurt. Like I had when, like, like when I was a kid. <laughs> yes. There yes. was the Tyrannosaurus and the Triceratops and the Mastodon <laughs> and the Pterodactyl. <laughs> cool stuff. Some interesting news pieces for this episode. Yeah, how about that? And with that, and as I said, segueing into our topic, we can wrap up news and start talking about all those crazy techniques I just talked, I just went over with looking at how those wings flapped. How do we do that kind of stuff with behavior in general? What what are those techniques? Why are we using them? And how do we try to define what a dead thing did when it wasn't dead? Let's learn together. So studying behavior, let's let's start off with that as to why we want to know the behavior of fossil animals. Why is it important? Why do we care? On the front end, the study of behavior is known as ethology. And this is the scientific study of animal behavior, typically focusing on natural or under natural conditions, normal habitat, normal circumstance. And it is viewing behavior as an evolutionary adaptive trait. And this is really why we care about behavior, is that it is how they're interacting with the ecosystem, but it's also a huge part of an animal's evolution. Right, an animal's more than just, you know, bones and muscle and and scales and feathers and stuff, like... how it acts, how it behaves is just as much a part of its ecology and evolution as anything else. Yes. And the the beginning mentality that we come at looking at behavior in the fossil record typically comes from that old adage, form follows function. The way an animal is shaped is because of how they're using it. Right. If you see wings, you have a pretty good idea what that animal was doing with them. And so that's that's kind of where teasing out the behavior starts is what what is the use for these things and how is the animal incorporating that in the environment or in its daily life. Now, this is not a perfect adage, and we'll go over this in more detail because that, you know, that that famous uh, idea is assuming that that everything is an adaptation and all adaptations are perfectly suited for their form, which is not always true. But... When it comes to the evolutionary aspect of behavior, this is uh, a very important part for us because we're looking at animals from way back when and trying to zoom backwards. One of the big aspects of behavior that we have to acknowledge to move forward is the concept of instincts because there are different kinds of behavior. Not all behaviors are achieved the same way or originate the same way. Instincts are what we're usually talking about when we say behavior. And that's usually most of the animal behaviors you're thinking of and that you deal with are instincts. Instincts are inheritable behavioral traits, behavioral practices, and responses to the ecosystem. This can be simple stuff all the way to very, very complex. And that is... What we're going to mostly focus on, because 
the other form of behaviors, which is learned behavior, which is most of our behaviors, most of like things like dolphins and chimps, almost all of their behaviors learn behavior. So that's much more difficult to study sometimes because that's way more plastic. Yeah, it's much more variable. It's much, we, we, we really want to know what organisms were doing by habit. What was their yes. regular day-to-day life? Because behavior is extremely complex, if only from the aspect of if any of you have ever worked with animals, each individual animal has its own quirks and behavior. Oh, yeah. Every single one does things slightly differently. Every single one has its favorites and least favorites. So you you cannot sum up behavior in a clean way and actually have covered the whole topic. That's impossible. So what's so difficult about studying fossil behavior? Some of it's obvious. These things are dead. They're not behaving anymore. No. So right there, that's a bit of a barrier. Yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's your problem. Poke it. It's not doing nothing no more. (laughs) Now, to some, that seems like then it is impossible. And that's something that often comes up with ancient animal behavior is that it's all just cool ideas, but we can't know. Right. How could you possibly know how these things were behaving? All that's left is bones and such. And you'll even hear that phrasing of like, well, we can't know, but... And yes and no to that comment. And that's kind of what this episode's about. Some things that make determining behavior really tricky is that it's not always as consistent as you would think it would be. Uh, Some things that would be useful for telling us about the behavior don't fossilize. Soft tissue stuff, like the keratin covering of beaks and claws can be very different than the bone underneath them. So while you're like, no, let's look at the bird's face. Okay, well, that's only part of the bird's face also some animals that are identical looking can have very different behaviors either species or within the same species depending on their situation and area i found this out while researching which is these numbers are fascinating brown bears which is the big bears here in north america range their diet in yellowstone about 51 percent of their diet is meat based compared to glacier national park where only 11 percent is meat based <laughs> very environmentally dependent like 11 percent that barely constitutes you being considered an omnivore like <laughs> you're pretty much an herbivore at that like, point so that's kind of what we're talking about you could see two skulls and they might be doing different things you know those bears don't look very different there's also behaviors that may come up that don't match the animal that's doing them uh, we've referenced the tree climbing goats before in previous yep. episodes. No one ever would have pointed at a goat. The, the, their body and go, wait, that definitely not an arboreal. Yeah. You, you don't look at a boat, goat and go, well, all right, put that with the squirrels because they obviously are living yes. similar life. <laughs> but the, one of my favorites is the fruit eating crocodilians that have been observed in human care. There's oh, been. Yeah documented cases of at least 13 of the species eating fruit and vegetation to some extent, but <laughs> the broadside came in an American alligator have been observed multiple times actively foraging for fruit, one time even pulling a fig from a tree. Wow. And those teeth don't look like they want to have anything to do with fruit. One of the, the most sort of broad examples is most animals, most vertebrate animals are good swimmers. Yes, 
But like, and I've seen plenty of videos of elephants mm-hmm. just having a grand old time swimming through stuff, and nothing about that skeleton would told would, would suggest to me that that is a swimming animal. Uh, swimming sloths is one of those. Yep. So you obviously don't belong in the water. There you go. You know, and yet, <laughs> so the form leads to function, or form follows function. Uh, more accurately, is not always as reliable as we would hope right and that's because behavior is variable it's also because function and form don't arise at the same time yes which is something we will talk about you don't instantly evolve the thing you need to do a thing it's you probably started swimming before you adapted the features that helped you to swim you have to have a pressure to adapt that trait so what are some of the techniques we use? Let's let's go through some of them. Let's do. One of the most obvious is what we said at the beginning. Look at the physical features and come to the most likely conclusion for what that feature would be used for. Some are really straightforward. Some are like, you know, almost too easy. Exoskeletons are wonderful because that's the animal's entire outer body if it's well preserved. That's how they interact with the ecosystem for the most part. Mouth parts, leg joints, all that good stuff. Antennae. Mm -hmm. And like, if you get a good at, like trilobites, we know so much about trilobites because we have their whole external, external shape. Limb proportions is another one that's often fairly obvious. Running cursorial animals have certain proportions. Typically a quick running animal is going to have short thighs and a long foot. That's very common. Fossorial digging animals, we mentioned that a little bit in in last episode, have very, very characteristic reinforced forearms and claws and reinforced parts of the skeleton that are making them structurally able to move dirt. Yep, and these are consistent. Like, you will see those same adaptations in moles, in badgers, in numerous animals that were that are using their their limbs for the same purposes it's kind of the idea you can make a shovel a different shape it's just not going to be as good as a normal shovel shape right you will converge on the same solutions to the same issue another one that's usually that you know i i use at the aquarium all the time when teaching about animals and skulls is dentition obviously you know sharp teeth eat meat flat teeth eat plants both eat both that's Straightforward, but you can also do cool stuff like looking at the features on the teeth left over from use, microwear on the teeth. How was it chewing and all that stuff? Yeah. The physical evidence. Eating. How was it moving its jaw based on the the striation? Yeah, you know, the, the the patterns of wear left in it. Yeah, it's it and you have it's microwear because you have to zoom in. And then uh, we've mentioned this one I know before, but I can't remember when we've mentioned it. Isotope analysis. Oh, yeah. You are what you eat. Yes. You know, we've mentioned that we've done it with our herbivores at the gray site, but looking at what's left over on the teeth, this is especially useful on herbivores, but it's not only useful on them. Right. You are chemically incorporating the, 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 the elements of your food into your body. But there are still potholes. As you mentioned, David, adaptations don't come up right away. And to give you an example of what we mean by that, if you look back through elephant evolution, carbon isotope analysis suggests that early elephants started moving toward a grazing grass diet about 8 million years ago. 
Okay, from browsing originally, yeah. eating leaves and such, to a grass, grass-based diet. And this is, we're, we're not positive why they did it, because there were still trees available, but grasslands were very much the, the trending thing at the time, coming into uh, their dominance. Hashtag grasslands. But if you only analyze the fossils from the morphological, from the shape of the jaws and the teeth, they only show features for grazing about 4 million years ago. <laughs> so they were doing it for several million years. For 4 million years. Before the teeth caught up. Which means there's this huge gap. And we're not positive why that happened. Maybe the pressure wasn't high enough. It could be that the shape happened for some other reason that finally kicked them off to adapt their jaw. Mm. But what this means is, looking at just the bones, you wouldn't know that they've been doing this weird thing for a long time because they weren't physically showing it, except in the chemical analysis of their, their teeth. I th if I remember correctly, one of the earliest newses we ever did, in episode 7, our friend Ethan brought a study that was about bats doing something very similar. Whereas modern day bats that were eating, I forget what exactly it was, but they were eating something that you wouldn't have expected them to eat. And there was the suggestion that perhaps they will eventually adapt to do this like fruit bats have. Well, it's, it's the same concept of like, if we see an animal, you know, going back to swimming, if we see a, a group of animals that suddenly is swimming way more than we'd expect them to, well conceivably in the future if that persists those animals will or at least an offshoot of them will start adapting to be better at that oh yeah so it's not an immediate thing you might have an animal that's in a weird behavioral transition period that's starting a new behavior but still just looks like the same old model that did all the other stuff now we can get other clues from a, a fossil deposit. Uh, the surrounding rock can tell you habitat and might give you clues to what was available for food. So this can, you know, you can fill in if it's an Arctic animal, that entails some behaviors. If it's a desert animal, that entails some behaviors. There's certain ways to survive in certain places. One of my favorite things I came across while looking up how to analyze the skeleton during a determining behavior is stress fractures. Hmm. Now, these, these are not broken bones, you know, because that could happen during the death of the animal or after the animal was long dead. Right. Or it could be something unusual. Like yes. that doesn't necessarily, if this animal got crushed by a rock, that's not a behavioral thing. <laughs> it's, it's not their yeah. practice to get that crushed by That was the rocks. sport. <laughs> <laughs> who, gets, who can get crushed by the biggest rock? These are small cracks in the bone from use. Basically, all modern vertebrates experience this just from, especially us terrestrial ones who are really under the effects of gravity. If you are a boxer and you're punching stuff, every time you punch, you crack the bones in your hand a little bit here and there, and then your bones heal and your bones become a little reinforced. That's why, you know, a boxer's fist is tougher than mine because they've been Punching is the scene from Kung Fu Panda in the second one when he punches her hand because she's been yes. punching the iron trees. It's that. This is wear from use. Right. Like the dental wear, but in bones. Yes. 
and you can look at where are those fractures showing up. Fractures in the arms suggest that they are grappling or, you know, pulling on stuff. You know, they're manipulating things with their arms, putting stress on them. If you see it in the feet, they are likely running or migrating and putting the stress on their feet. They might be, one thing they suggest is holding down struggling prey with their foot and having to resist against a fighting body, you know, jaw and stuff. We talked about this a little bit with uh, in the, the Baculum episode, mm-hmm. 53, where the, the dire wolves at La Brea, they were finding a certain pattern of injury that suggested certain mating behaviors. Uh, and actually, speaking of uh, st- stress to uh, to parts of the body, I probably shouldn't give any details about this because I just heard about it recently <laughs> and it's not published. But a certain someone told me that they were studying a certain animal from a certain place and found more reinforcement on one side of the body than the other. Oh, wow. Suggesting that this fossil animal was handed yeah in the same way that that you are right or left-handed you can look for handedness in fossil potentially by that i'm repeatedly using this side of my body more than the other and it's showing in the 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 way that my bones are are shaped yeah absolutely so microwares can give you really intimate they can give you very you know close looks at what a uh an animal is actually doing with its body that's one of the the things that's kind of interesting to me about the physical characteristics is you can get a lot of good information, but sometimes it's species level, sometimes it's individual level. You know, the microware stuff can actually be individual unless you're finding it across the species. You know, handedness right. is something that is going to be animal to animal, not species to species necessarily. Maybe it would be, but not necessarily. So that's the first most obvious approach. Look at the bones. What were they most likely doing? But what about the more subtle things or the things that aren't going to stay in the bones, those soft tissue features or things that really you could do with any sort of skeleton? Were they dancing? Did they do courtships? Did they take care of their babies? Did they, you know, migrate? Did they, you know, were they nocturnal? Were they all of those kind of things? Those are a little bit trickier to just look at the bone because that's more of a not choice, but <laughs> those are things that can be shifted kind of regardless of what kind of body type you have. So one of the ways to determine that is to look at modern analogs. Look at the animals today. Analog is one of the, uh, like, it, it comes up in paleontology all the time. All the time. Analog, a comparison with some not necessarily related, not necessarily that, that, that they're doing the exact same thing, but we see a similar type of animal with a similar body plan and a similar habitat or whatever, and we can reasonably infer that they are doing similar things. Yes. So there are kind of two routes to doing this. First, just looking at similar animals. What? Okay, this animal and this ancient animal have similar bodies. So let's look at what the one that's still breathing is doing with it. Or this animal has modern relatives. What are they doing? What is consistent among their closest relatives to figure out what genetically is most likely for the animal to be doing? Now, 
sometimes this is obvious. Sometimes those two groups are the same thing. Uh, the example one of the sites I looked at used was living in fossil bats. Bats are fossil bats' closest relatives to compare to, and they look exactly the same. So what were fossil bats doing? Uh, probably very similar to what nowadays bats are doing. So that's easy. Other times, it's not easy. So dinosaurs, for instance, are one of those where is does it make more sense to compare a big, large-bodied dinosaur to a big, large-bodied animal of today or to their closest relatives, birds and crocodilians, the modern archosaurs? Right. So if you want to figure out what a triceratops was doing, do you compare it to a rhino or do you compare it to a ostrich? Yeah. And an ostrich and a crocodile. Yes. And and that's that's kind of the the big there's sometimes a debate to be had there. Yes, they are more related to the archosaurs. But where can you draw a parallel between an ostrich and a crocodile and a triceratops like what looks the same? Can you really say that that's enough? So sometimes the the option is to do both. You know, just kind of come at it from both directions and see what trends kind of fall out. And there are some that make sense on one side than others. To give you some examples, for comparing to similar animals, there was a really cool paper I found that was looking at nerve signaling in animals to determine how fast could big dinosaurs move. So it looked at how quickly does a message actually travel across a nervous system and there's a speed. There's a speed of nerves, which is awesome. That's super cool. It's about 180 feet per second, which is fast. That is like, I, I feel like we rarely hit a thing in an episode where I go, that's an interesting random fact that I will just carry around with. Yep. Me. That's the, the speed of nerve signals. Yes. Is about 180 feet or 55 meters a second. That's super That, cool. ladies and gentlemen, is the speed of thought. <laughs> oh, it it sort of is. It kind of is. Oh. <laughs> it's at least the speed of reflex. Yes. <laughs> and because of this, as they put it, speed limit, it means that big animals like elephants can literally not go as fast as smaller animals. It's not just the mass that they're having to move more. The example they gave is if the elephant was trotting along, and if it was like truly trucking it and running, and it stepped on something... It wouldn't actually be able to react to the thing it stepped on until it was almost lifting the foot off the ground. Interesting. So that would be like if you stepped on a Lego while walking around and only started to react as you were lifting your foot off the Lego. So there are actual physical constraints on behavior that we can see in modern animals and compare. And, and the way it summed it up was for a big animal, they can either move fast, vaguely, you know, without any resolution of their senses because they can't they can't feel what they're doing quick enough or move slowly with detail and be able to sense what they're doing. So it's likely that big dinosaurs could not have been very fast. Not that they're super slow-mo, because elephants... Right, elephants are still pretty fast. They can still do what they want to do in a reasonable amount of time, but... But they're not cheetahs. They're not cheetahs. They're not little darting animals you know so that's one comparison physical size restraints the comparing to relatives is a whole category of study called phylogenetic bracketing 
incidentally, back in our Q&A, uh, the last Q&A we did, one of our people asked for our favorite scientific terms and phrases. I should have said this one. I love the concept of phylogenetic bracketing. This, this is also one of my tops. It is so cool. So phylogenetic bracketing is the concept that a shared feature, physical or behavioral or, you know, what have you, genetic, that is spread throughout a group is therefore very likely a very ancestral trait to that group. And the more widespread it is, the farther back it likely goes. Right. So this comes up most often. I think you'll probably hear us and others talk about things like feathers and dinosaurs. Yes. Is we know these families all had feathers and we know when their last common ancestor was. And it is most likely that feathers only evolved once. They would have been present in that ancestor. So all of those, the descendants of that ancestor can be expected to have inherited feathers. It's the same reason that we can say a saber-toothed cat had fur, even though, to my knowledge, we have never found fur on a saber-toothed cat. Yes. Because they're cats. All cats have fur. It's part of their shared ancestry. It's, it's the to give you a, a wide version of it, life has DNA, and it has goes all the way back to the earliest life because all life today has the same kind of DNA. Yes. So that's that common descent. Oh, hey, Using hey, it, a, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good term. It's, it's a, a good, good term, you know, yeah. Using it on modern animals or extant animals for extinct animals is known as extant phylogenetic bracketing or EPB. And this is typically the practice is to look at the first two most closely related groups to whichever group you're studying. So that's why with dinosaurs... Now, there's only two modern groups of archosaurs, but birds are the closest relative. Crocodilians are the next closest relative. So to do proper phylogenetic bracketing, you should always use both. Which is weird because birds and crocs are so different. So different. And yet, they actually share a lot of key features that we can then kind of apply back to the rest of archosauria. Both are extremely social. Both are vocal. Yup. Good hearing, good 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 vocalization. Both are very good parents, high parental care. Both are nest builders. Both also have things like internal anatomy of their breathing is similar, their hearts are similar, and they both have gizzard-like structures. Yeah. So these are consistencies that we can't say, and there, stamp, boom, all dinosaurs had all... The, okay, well, you can evolve away stuff, so it's not guaranteed, but those who evolved it away are probably the weirdos, and it was probably normal to have these features. Right. Assuming that these features didn't evolve multiple times, once in crocs at least, and at least once in birds... Which is the main Achilles heel of this method, convergent right. evolution. We're suggesting that... Those shared features are likely to have been ancestral, and if they were ancestral, then their other cousins likely inherited it. Yes. So I think, and we've talked about this, we talked about this probably in episode 52, that I think it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that dinosaurs were probably noisy. Absolutely. All the archosaurs we know have a, a, an overwhelming habit to be noisy animals. Now, the one area this can sometimes fall short on or at least for using modern taxa on it, are 
groups that do not have well-established modern descendants or relatives, because there are some fossil groups that kind of just, they went extinct and didn't leave much behind for us to compare to them. So we can't always phylogenetic bracket them very well. And then even for even for those who do have that, what do you do about just the weirdos? Yep. The animals who don't have a physical shape that matches anything we can immediately point to today. Saber-toothed cats being one of those where nothing has teeth sticking out of its mouth like that today. So what was it doing with them? The big terror birds is one of those where how exactly those large-headed terrestrial birds functioned is kind of a, a hard question to answer because we don't have a modern uh, analogy for it. We don't have a animal using that same technique to survive. Yeah, plesiosaurs. Plesiosaurs. Like, it's like a, an animal with the body of a sea turtle and the neck of a... Plesiosaur. Fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the neck of a plesiosaur. Like, yeah. What are you doing with that? It's, but that's kind of the nice thing about this episode is every topic can build on the previous ones. If you find a skeleton... You can look at the features, then you can phylogenetic bracket them, and then you can keep applying new ways to look at it to hopefully narrow in. Yes, I was going to point out that migration, you mentioned migration before. Mm -hmm. That's something we can look at physical features like isotopes. Yes. And we can look for evidence from modern relatives or things like that. I also wanted to make a point that you you mentioned that sometimes fossil animals are just weird and we don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest pitfalls of modern comparison is that sometimes our modern animals are weird. Yeah, they're the weirdos. And we just assume that, that's, that they're the, the trend. This has always kind of bugged me whenever people try to use elephants as, <laughs> as comparisons for dinosaurs. Yes. Where it's, you gotta, you have to be real careful because... On the one hand, those are very different physiological creatures. Absolutely. That is a mammal versus an archosaur, and they are doing very different things. But also, there have been lots and lots of animals, of mammals, of proboscideans, elephant-like animals, that have been elephant-sized. And if you're using just the modern elephants as your example of a large-bodied animal, you're assuming that the modern elephants are the normal pattern so this this comes up with like hair and i've heard people say oh well large dinosaurs couldn't have been feathery because you know look at large animals today elephants today are not fuzzy they're not you know covered in in hair and sure yeah, there's a whole discussion to be had there but that's assuming that modern elephant like we don't know maybe all elephants ever have been super fuzzy except the three species we have today and you have to be real careful with that kind of stuff. It is not a direct one-to-one -one comparison for today's animals and those of the past. Sometimes you can get real close, but other times you have to kind of say, all right, if they had a similar nervous system you know, or similar biology, this is what this animal suggests about right. that you animal. You work with the data you have. Now, one thing we can do that helps us not quite circumvent, because it still should be used in conjunction, but it takes a side road to get to the, some of the same answers, is computer models. Yeah, this is so cool nowadays. This is, this is really the, the holy grail of the modern world for applying to fossil animals, is now we can 
semi skip the middleman of instead of interpreting trends in the limb proportions and the skeleton and trying to find an analog, we can image that 3D structure of the fossil, put it into computer and use engineering software to say, all right, where are the stress areas? Where are the strengthened areas? How much can this take? How does it actually move when we apply those stresses to it? And the computer will give us an answer of, hey, this is what this bone is telling me the program. And we can, that can add into that whole overall question. And to go to what you said about how normally we're combining methods, oftentimes in a thorough reconstruction of a computer model, what we'll do is take the skeletal data from the fossil and then use modern animals to help us estimate soft tissue and the joint connections and and the, the skin and muscle around them and then give it to the computer and then the computer's doing its physics calculations. So we really are putting all these methods together. Absolutely. And that's very much what happened with the news article I mentioned about the the flapping as the dinosaur ran. Yep. And also, going back to a, a previous news article we mentioned, but it's the perfect example of this whole thing, was Orobot. Yeah, you mentioned Orobot back in episode... I'm just kidding. I don't remember the news. <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> so Orobot was a robotic version of a ancestral tetrapod very lizardy like walking basically what happened there for anyone who does not remember the news is they found a fossil of orobates and a trackway which we'll talk about after the break and then they wanted to figure out how did orobates walk to create that trackway how did it fit within those footprints so first they looked at modern tetrapods, lizards and salamanders, and similar shaped animals to see how do you all walk. They fed those into a computer to get digital models that they applied to a digital model of orobates and then fed it through the trackway. They would have it walk mimicking and doing similar or adjusted walking styles to each of the tetrapods that they looked at finding the most likely walking patterns. But then to take it a step further, they made a robot that they could feed that program as the remote control into the robot and have it physically in real-world physics test the walking patterns and figure out, okay, but what actually works? And that's really... That is the dream method. Find a fossil, analyze the fossil. Look at animals most similar to it. What are they doing? Put it into a computer. What does the computer say makes sense? Test those things the computer said. Yes. And you should end up with at least an extremely viable hypothesis. Yeah. But these are all ways for us to try to interpret behavior by just looking at the animal. Right. That is not the only way we learn about behavior in the fossil record. Sure isn't. Because sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, the behavior is what fossilizes. So, 
There are other kinds of fossils, and we've mentioned these before. Sometimes you get fossils that preserve what the animal did. This can be in different forms, but probably the most common that you're going to hear people talk about when looking at this kind of fossilized behavior is ichnofossils. 61 episodes in, it's about time we talked about ichnofossils. Yeah, ichnofossils are when traces are left behind by the organism, but not necessarily the organism itself. Fossilized uh, um, clues of the animal. Yes, footprints, burrows, anything that they, you know, nests and, and, and things like that. That the animal did. Things they left, they made. They made this impression somewhere. I made these. <laughs> so there are lots of different ichnofossils. They're classified in all sorts of different categories. We will go into more of those categories later on in an ichnofossil episode, I'm sure. But oh, yes. there is an ethological classification of categories. Ichnofossils classified by the behaviors they are evidence of. And it's a system of classification known as the Silicurian system, which is named for Adolf Siliker, who is a German paleontologist uh, that lived from 1925 to 2014 and worked on evolutionary and ecological paleontology and described that most ichnofossils can fall into five main behavioral activities for these ethological categories. And they are cubicnia is traces that organisms leave in the sediment. So this could be a resting in an area or, you know, nestled in the sediment to hide. Right, on the surface. Somewhere on the surface. Domicnia is dwelling structures. Dwelling structures like burrows and stuff like that. Subsurface typically. And this is probably the most common of the established ethological classes. Right. Worm burrows and stuff are super common in the fossil record. Usually. Now, and with most ichnofossils, you can't apply it to which animal made the fossil. Sometimes you can, but not usually. Burrows are really bad for this because unless the animal died in the burrow, it's just the, it's the tube. You can kind of describe what the physical features yeah. Most likely, yeah, but it worm is a very, very broad category. Yeah, and a big hole in ground. Unless there's claw marks and stuff, you may not have any clues. Yeah, Phodonychnia are feeding traces that are from the result of the organism disturbing uh, sediments in search of their food. So digging oh. through the yeah, sediments, yeah, yeah. or like when those sharks like yes nuzzle through the sand exactly there's a stingrays puffing away at the sand to try to get to food pasichnia is feeding traces from grazers so scraping at the earth as they pull up whatever they're grazing i wonder if that also includes like you can get traces of insects as they walk across leaves chewing up Oh, yeah, probably. Like they leave little troughs in the leaf as they chew. And you can tell what insect it was based on the mouth part shape. Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that would count. And those are great ichnofossils. Fantastic. And then rapicnia are traces of locomotion, when the animal's moving. Walking, swimming, jumping. However it's doing it, this is by far the most famous of the ichnofossils, trackways. Oh, yeah, footprints and stuff. And it's one of the most exciting because 
this is a large scale ichnofossil. Some of these can be huge and they can include dozens of species in a single area. They get really complex. There are some trackway areas that it's meters upon meters of trackway and you can have multiple, like it was at like a highway. Yes. With all different things. You can even get traces, like there are swimming traces yeah. that have been identified. Like you, ichnofossils, we don't have time in this episode to talk about how wacky and awesome ichnofossils get. So let's go through some examples of what are some of the most interesting behaviorally of the ichnofossils that we have found and some examples. We're going to go, now it's going to be kind of a list of the cool examples we found that have given us insights into behavior and why it gave us that insight. That's what I want to focus on is how did that help us learn this? Trackways are where we'll start. Dinosaur trackways are some of the most famous fossil, like tourist site fossils around the world because they're built into the land. You know, it's hard to excavate a trackway because you can't, you don't want to remove each footprint. You need the whole slab. (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes they're just left there. Yeah, there's lots of national parks that are just covered in dinosaur footprints here and there, wherever the bedrock shows. We have found various trackways from different dinosaurs. We can't say which species, but we can often tell you which group, you know, which kind of dinosaur, because it has certain anatomy of the feet that restricts it to a certain type. Sometimes they just tell us, oh, this dinosaur was walking here. Other times they can, you know, you can make estimates on speed. Speed is very common to try to determine how fast was it moving? How was it moving? The distance between the footprints. And if you can apply it to a certain size and group of dinosaurs, that might give you limb length and body size and potential weight. And that can give you a calculation that can give you speed estimates. Not perfect estimates. There's been some debate as to how reliable these estimates are, but speed's an obvious one. But we can also get really interesting things about the behavior, especially when we find group trackways. Yes, how were different individuals interacting with each other? Now, sometimes these are difficult because if the area the tracks were made and were exposed for a long time, they may not have been there at the same time. But there are some clues. For instance, some famous sauropod trackways from the United Kingdom, date back to the Middle Jurassic, were found with roughly 40 continuous trackways, some over 180 meters long. Huge trackway fossil. Almost all of these are headed in the same direction, most nearly parallel to each other. Cool. And they're on one bedding, so one sediment layer. Right. In an area that was likely only exposed for a few hours between tides, because this seems to be a shallow coastal plain. They do move in herds. They do move in herds. So this, <laughs> those evidences give us major support that this was not one went by, and then the next day another went by, right, and the next right. day. It seems these were all here together, and they were moving together. Now, here's where you can get more interesting with this. The foot patterns show different postures. Some are narrow, some are wide, which could be answered by it being different species, which would suggest a multi-species herd, like you see in migration on the savanna of Africa when wildebeest and zebra and antelope and gazelle travel together for safety and because they're all going the same direction. That's super cool. 
There was also theropod footprints found in association, in association with these, which I just love that mental image, which is the, that's also the wonderful thing about ichnofossils, as I said before, of a predator just, just following the, the bandwagon. There is at least one trackway that I know of that, if I remember right, it's a couple of theropod tracks and a sauropod track that has been interpreted as hunting behavior. Yes. That it, they appear to be in the same place following this particular prey item, which is really, really fun. Which which gives us some insight. You know, okay, so they move in herds. They might be, you know, uh, friendly to other species while they migrate like this or travel. Who knows? Maybe they live in multi-species groups normally. You know, there are plenty of animals we see that are just like, oh, yeah, we just hang out together. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. You also can get really interesting things like family groups. There was a group of ornithopod dinosaurs, those typically two-legged herbivore dinosaurs that are usually smallish, that consisted of one seemingly adult ornithopod and ten smaller individuals. Ooh, like ducklings. Like ducklings. This goes back, (laughs) this is dating back 170 million years, and the size of the footprints of the juveniles suggests they were probably less than a year old. Wow. So this was babies falling... Whether it was mom or dad, we can't say. Uh, and who knows, because in birds today, mom and dad both can help take care of the babies, depending on which bird you look at. This one is one of my favorites just because it's weird. There was a set of fossils found that were not trackways, but were made by feet that reveal scraping marks, scratches in the ground that seem to be have been made by large theropods, the big predatory dinosaurs. And this is found here in the U.S. and Colorado from the Cretaceous. And they've been interpreted as nest scrape displays. So scratching the ground as display method because they're in a pattern. And some of these are up to two meters in diameter, so across. Big patterns in what has been interpreted as a nesting area, likely a nesting either colony or at least common ground. And they've interpreted these as display marks, like you see in other ground-nesting birds to say, this is my spot, and paw at the ground as a display. I remember when this came out, this was just a few years ago, this study was published, and there was this wonderful bit of artwork of these dancing theropod dinosaurs Doing the and this is again we're using ichnofossils with modern comparison. Say these traces are weird, but we see a similar thing with these ground nesting birds when they do their silly little nest dances. Perhaps that's what we're seeing is silly little dinosaur dances. Yeah, yeah, flamboyant dinosaurs. Which that's all I want. It's so fantastic. Now you can also get traces left uh, in other means. One broad group would I encompassed under feeding traces evidence left behind because an animal either was eating something or was trying to eat something or had eaten something tooth marks tooth marks are extremely common and important now you can't always match the tooth up to the person you know that's a common theme here to sometimes the, to the though, animal yes yeah to the to the animal or the prey yeah, yeah. the person <laughs> but sometimes you can sometimes you can get or at least you can get close enough you can look at how the mark was left was it a scraping or was it a puncture was it biting with force onto whatever it was biting or was it 
trying to pick something off of it, scrape meat off. Some we see both. It seems tyrannosaurs did both of these, and they see the puncture mark, the hard bites on joints, but the scraping marks across surfaces, and that's interpreted them as going for like kill bites on joints, crippling bites, and then scraping the meat off of the surfaces of bones at, while feeding. And you can see that in the anatomy of their teeth. Their front teeth are made for nipping. And you cut, taking little nipping bites off of stuff, while the side teeth are crunchy teeth. So some bites are definitely predator-prey interactions because the bite was on the animal but didn't kill the animal or doesn't seem to have killed it. There is one Edmontosaurus fossil, a hadrosaur, the duck-billed dinosaurs, that has bites on the neural spine on the tailbones. So the spines on the tailbones have damage, as the article put it, mutilated because of a bite interpreted to likely be from Tyrannosaurus because it's in the right area, the right age. But there are indications of regrowth and healing in the bone. Yeah, so it got bit but made it, made, got, got away. Got away. This is the Edmontosaurus that got away. Yes, a failed hunting attempt. So And so that means it's not scavenging, which is always the difficult thing with feeding traces, is you can't say for sure that they were a killing bite. It may have been, I found this body and then mangled it and my, left my teeth marks all over it. This was hunting. Very, very likely hunting. This was definitely a living bite. Yes. Some bite marks are maybe not for feeding. Uh, there are some that are potentially more interaction-based. There are a series of fossils that show head-biting scars, bites on the face or cranium of various theropod species. So bite marks on their face that might suggest during competition or territorial fighting or display that they are going for the face. Some of these are gouging some of them are dragged across the face so it seems that when theropods at least certain theropods didn't get along they just went for it like hippos i'm imagining hippos or elephant seals just like it's they don't mess around with posturing necessarily or at least they go past the posturing and really go in for a bite so some of these tooth marks might be for other behaviors that aren't meant to be fatal or to feed. I remember there was a, a poster that I think it was Lee Hall and et al. presented, and we might have even mentioned this in episode 17 about SVP, where he they were looking at bite marks in Dunkleosteus oh, yes. fossils. Dunkleosteus was the big, the big famous armored fish from the Devonian, and they were finding bite marks that appeared to be from other Dunkleosteus <laughs> but like you said, looking for patterns of where the bites were around the joints, the bites seem to have been targeting the joints in the armor, going for points of weakness. So you can see like how they attacked each other, how they went after their prey, how they went after each other in, in these combats. You can get these really fascinating bits of information about these things. Absolutely. It gives you an idea for their technique. And then I'm going to mention this one briefly because we have a whole episode on it that you can go back to. But coprolites are another great source of behavior information. Poop. About their feeding. Fossilized poop 
definitely can tell you what kind of stuff they ate if you can look inside it. Now, you usually you can't apply it to an individual or sometimes even to a group necessarily because plant eater is not really a group. <laughs> but sometimes you can get pretty close. There was one 44 centimeter long coprolite yep. <laughs> that people have kind of been like, because of where it was found and the age of it, it it's kind of got to be T-Rex, especially because it has bone fragments in it. <laughs> yeah. So you can tell not not just what an animal was eating, but you can even tell a bit about how it was, what it was taking and how it was digesting. Yes, because they do show. Based on what makes it to the end signs of acid etching they do show some on there on the bones so they say it suggests a fast digestion that they that it went through them very much like birds they eat and then poop copper lights episode 30 by the way good episode go back and listen to it oh it was a lot of fun so ichnofossil super useful for telling us about behavior but there are even better fossils sometimes rarely (laughs) when we're lucky when we're lucky when we win the paleontological lottery you can find fossils that preserve behavior in the moment in in action in action these are extremely rare but over the years and years that people have been finding fossils there are a few that have come up stomach contents is one example of this of you definitely ate this you know yes no in your guts yeah there's no because the tooth marks I mean, for all we know, they were chewing on it. You know, there are animals that do that today of like, I need to knock out this loose tooth, so I'm going to gnaw on this bone until I get rid of my sore tooth. You know, I'm going to leave tooth marks all over it, but I wasn't eating it. It was tough, but it was softer than a rock, so I wanted to chew on it. But stomach content, you ate it. There are tons of examples of stomach content. This is by far the most common version of this. You have the results of behavior definitely there, but sometimes you do get some really interesting moments of behavior here there are three examples i have to mention where animals died with something in their stomach and it was a surprising something zephactinus is probably the most famous this is very large ancient fish that's died with another fish gillicus inside it and the interpretation is that it was too big and it choked (laughs) died of that because that was the last meal (laughs) and this is actually there are other fish fossils that are this way because fish do this all the time fish nowadays mouths are not as big as their stomachs well there's a really wonderful if any of you ever watched river monsters where while he's going through the amazon sees a fish acting weird at the surface comes up to it and pulls it out and pulls a fish almost the same length out of its mouth (laughs) That it was in the process of choking on. So fish do that. There was a, there was an amphibian that they found in a very similar way. Sclerocephalus was an amphibian from 300 million years ago in the Paleozoic. This predator attempted to eat another smaller amphibian and died with it halfway in the mouth. (laughs) The fossil literally has the butt end of the prey in front of the face and the torso of the prey inside the mouth. But my favorite that I found is an occurrence of, as they call it, a three-level trophic chain. Yes. A shark from the Permian 
was preserved with two timnospondyles, large amphibians, inside its stomach. So these were juveniles of this large amphibian species. Ate two of them. Ate two of them, and inside one of those amphibians was another fish. Yep. That's awesome. Now, let me, I don't know if Will knows this, dear listeners, but there are two examples of a three-tiered trophic fossil. Do you know the other one? I know I, I... The other one's way better. Yeah, I know I heard of it. <laughs> I, did, could, I did not find it while doing my research, so I can't remember. It was a snake, Paleopython, if I remember correctly, early Cenozoic maybe, with inside of its gut a lizard, partial skeleton of a lizard, and inside the lizard, fragments of a beetle. Right. I do remember that. Yep. Three. Three in one. That's, that's a Russian nesting doll. Of, of a fossil. <laughs> of a stomach content feeding behavior. Now, every now and then you can get images of in-process feeding or in-process hunting. Leafs with bug bites on them is a great... that the, A bug was definitely eating it. There was one insect found within a plant stem at one point. So, like, cool. sometimes you find the bug still in the thing it was eating. But, and I know we've mentioned it before because I know you mentioned it back in the snake app. Sanaja was the fossil snake found within a sauropod nest, coiled around some of the eggs next to a juvenile sauropod, a baby sauropod. With facing the, the baby sauropod. Facing the baby. <laughs> yep. And, of course, there's the question to be asked, well, was it there for the baby or the egg? It does not show adaptations for egg eating, so it seems it was waiting out in the nest for something to hatch. <laughs> to go get it. One of the most famous fossilized potential behaviors, and this one's really famous not only because it's gone on to the movies, but because there was there is debate to be had, is a potential fossilized moment of pack hunting, or what has since then become famously known as an example of pack hunting. In 1964 in Montana, the remains of four small theropods and one large herbivorous dinosaur were found and after being studied and named were named Tenontosaurus and probably more recognizable to all you Deinonychus the best dinosaur Deinonychus is fantastic oh it's great it's it's the velociraptor from the Jurassic Park franchise it is and this is what started the notion of pack hunting in the dromaeosaur lineage and and it was this and also just the fact that Deinonychus teeth and remains are commonly associated with Tenontosaurus. These are commonly associated dinosaurs. With those other teeth, we don't know if it was hunting. Scavenging absolutely could be happening there. But this assemblage suggested pack behavior. And nowadays, that's general knowledge, quote unquote. Yes, it common, commonly thought. This is still not, we do not have definite evidence of pack hunting in these dinosaurs. And people have suggested that instead of this being an evidence of pack hunting behavior, that it actually might kind of be the opposite and be evidence of high competition, that they were all going for the same thing and either died in the moment of it. And part of the reason they point to that is because going back to our phylogenetic bracketing, looking at modern diapsids, you don't see a lot of evidence of cooperative pack behavior. But what you do see 
in things like Komodo dragons and crocs is a bunch will converge to eat a thing. Yes. And and basically fight for whatever they can get and then go back to their day. And and crocodiles will do that to, you know, when they feed even, you'll see them using another as an anchor to twist off a piece. Yes. And they've even <laughs> noticed them take turns. So there could be some cooperation going on, but not necessarily tactical hunting. So there's and there's only one predatory bird that no, that's really known to use pack hunting. That's the Harris hawk out in the deserts will hunt as a pack. Otherwise, we don't see it. So it's not saying it's not, but it's definitely not definite proof. Social behavior is often tricky to determine. There are some examples, some assemblages of animals that have been found. There is one example of uh, early marsupial relatives that were 35 individuals were found together. And because of the mixture of ages and that the male and females seem very sexually dimorphic it seems that this was a social group that was because sexual dimorphism doesn't is, is very common among social animals as males compete and or females compete for whatever is important in that social hierarchy usually mates there are also a number of examples we mentioned this in past episodes of fossils of animals caught in the act of mating yeah. So we mentioned this in the last episode, Turtles 60, and I want to say placoderms. What well, didn't wasn't there a placoderm example? Ye- episode 29. I it was a fish. It was a placoderm like yes. fish. I just don't remember which episode. I it was can't in. yeah, I can't remember, but it it's uh and we found evidences of pregnant individuals so where we yes. know internal fertilization took place that they they mated, they didn't spawn. There's also uh Amber is great for preserving behavioral stuff because you'll get like there there was that fossil from a little while ago of the tick on a dinosaur feather. Yeah, there's a fossil somewhere. Uh, there's an amber preserved fossil of I forget what it was. Some kind of an I think it was a wasp or something caught in a spider web. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Just the and then uh, we mentioned this in the copper lights episode episode thirty fossilized farts in amber. Yes. So. All sorts of amber's great for for catching things in the moment. Well, because it's literally a time capsule. Pretty it, much, it is. Uh, it is effectively a stasis stasis field. Just <laughs> whatever's happening right now is done. Is, is happening forever, <laughs> and is happening forever. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's there's so many examples that I, if we wanted to make a three hour episode, I would go through because oh my gosh, people, there are so many amazing moments. Oh yeah. List your favorites, like comment on this episode, tell us yes, your favorites. And, and if you want us to come back and talk about them later, we will. Oh, yes. But I would fail you if I did not go ahead and skip, now that we are toward the end of our episode, to the best example. Oh, the, the listeners will revolt if we do not mention this. I will revolt. I will be revolted. And what's funny is I say that, and I know there are listeners who are going, oh, they're certainly they're, they're going to talk about, and they have an idea that's not what we're going to talk <laughs> yes, about. Yes. So they might revolt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to have a whole bunch of disappointed people. that goes, well, you're right. <laughs> the fighting dinosaurs. Now, that is not me talking about a topic. That is the name of this fossil. That yes, that's what it's been called. Name. <laughs> that is within quotation marks. This is the name that was given to a fossil discovery of two dinosaur skeletons in association with each other. 
a Velociraptor, Velociraptor mongoliensis, and a Protoceratops, Protoceratops endrosi. Yeah, these are both like six foot long dinosaurs, yeah. small predator, small herbivore. This is from the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, discovered in 1971, dated back to 74 million years ago, toward end of the Cretaceous. And this fossil is not just interesting because, oh my goodness, they're together, which suggests that maybe they were interacting, but there's always the, okay, yeah, but they might have washed together. That can happen to skeletons. Buried together. We, we drowned, and then we both got washed into the same riverbank and just slumped over next to each other by, by statistics. But these appear to have been buried rapidly in like a dune collapse or something. Indeed. And the association of these two fossils, if they, this is sort of the thing that they always do in romantic comedies where it's an accident. What do you mean? You fell and tripped kind yes, of thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> if they fell into this position, it's, that's the ridiculous, that, that, that is the one in the million shot. These two animals are positioned with the velociraptors, clawed hands, grasping the head of the protoceratops its clawed foot dug into the neck underneath the protoceratops and the protoceratops's mouth and beak clamped on to the right forearm of the velociraptor seemingly crushing it locked in combat buried instantly preserved that way mid fight for their lives it's interpreted as a moment of hunting, the Velociraptor going after the Protoceratops as a meal and the Protoceratops not having it. Yes. Now, it's hard to say. Were they both alive when they were buried? We can't say for sure. There are some who interpret that the Protoceratops, who is kind of over the Velociraptor, while fighting back, may have fallen on the Velociraptor and died pinning the Velociraptor there. Hmm. And then they were buried. Whether the Velociraptor was buried while alive or starved to death underneath this much heavier dinosaur. Big, bulky... Protoceratopses are like just little trucks. They're oh, yeah. Well, it's like a cow. Uh, you it's know, very, that's a like a teeny, creature. tiny cow. That's one interpretation. But there are some who have said, okay, well, but once again, you have to outrule the scavenging behavior whenever you find preying evidence. And that's always a tricky one. But here, it's not often that you have to murder the carcass that you're about to eat. And it usually doesn't bite back. It usually doesn't bite back. So <laughs> this is almost surely, if at least not hunting, a fight. Right. I've heard it. Exp some have, have suggested that maybe they ran into each other. Because it's also worth pointing out that most animals do not attack prey that is larger than they are. Yes. By themselves. I've always wondered if it was because we have found Protoceratops nesting sites and evidence that they are, per, they have parental care. As we saw with our little family group of dinosaurs, dinosaur parental care has been pretty well established by this point. Oh, yeah. I've always wondered if the Velociraptor wasn't going for this Protoceratops, but a smaller one. And, and mom, mom showed up. And mom came to kick butt. That was a mini game in the Magic School Bus in the time of the dinosaurs computer game that I used to play. There was a oh, that's awesome. where you were a, a protoceratops and you had to fight off theropods as they tried to attack your, come after your babies. Yeah, They were, they were oviraptor because oops, but same yep. basic idea. <laughs> and so this is just one of the most amazing fossils. We have never found another fossil to match this. There's one other known as the dueling dinosaurs from here in the U S that, might be it was a tyrannosaur and a ceratopsid of some sort i say some sort because it's still in storage 
because when it went to auction, it didn't get sold and just went back into the vault. Ah. So that's, it's just, well, it's one of those, we mentioned this in the Q&A because one of our listeners asked, it was like, why haven't you mentioned this? Come on, guys. (laughs) And it's like, I've heard about it so much that for me, it's like, oh yeah, the fighting dinosaurs. Well, it's it's like talking about the Eiffel Tower. It's like, okay, well, you know the Eiffel Tower. Let's move on. It's the same reason I never visited the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) <laughs> and I grew up like an hour from it and eh, whatever Statue of Liberty but just to sit down and think about this fossil it is absolutely incredible it's ridiculous it shows some amazing behavior my favorite thing that people have drawn a parallel to is that the Velociraptor is holding on to the Protoceratops and seemingly whilst basically on its back kicking at the underside of the Protoceratops and you have an animal nearby you that does that all the time when it I hunts. sure do. I love comparing dromaeosaurs to cats. Yes. That is my, my headcanon for dromaeosaurs <laughs> until evidence <laughs> tells me otherwise. I, I always picture them like cats. They're, they're made of blades and just, oh, it's so cool. What a cool topic. As I said, there are so many more examples we could go over. The blog post will be full of links and pictures. I have so many links for you all, but we're going to wrap it up now because it's, we're already, this is already a beefy episode and we aren't quite done yet. So I'm going to, we're going to wrap up our behavior conversation for the time being, and we'll come back to it if you want us to. Like we said, if, if there are examples you think are super cool, make a comment, put it out like on Facebook and Twitter and, 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 and the blog and such where other people can see it. Go ahead, share it. We'll, we'll, we'll start a whole list where you can list your favorite examples of behavioral evidence in the fossil record. Before we sign off, a little bit of extra. We have a patron question. Ooh, another patron question. Indeed. So like our shout out at the beginning, for those who sign up on Patreon and donate to us at a particular level, you also get the opportunity to ask us questions that we'll answer here on this here podcast. And we have one from Harry who asks us, was there a time in Earth's history when organisms were largest? I'm conscious this depends on how we measure things. We have the blue whale now and the general Sherman, which both have very high masses. How likely is it there was something this big in the past that we haven't found? Very interesting question. Very big question, but we'll try to answer it quickly. Uh, Big question. A big question. Uh, General Sherman, (laughs) by the way, is a tree. Big tree. A, an individual giant sequoia that is the largest li- currently living tree in the world. So to answer Harry's question uh, first, was there a time in Earth's history when organisms were largest? Not really. It, yeah, that's, it wasn't so much that everyone was biggest at one time. No, this is a common misconception about paleontology and, and, and ancient organisms that something about being in the past meant that you were huge but that's not true uh, for the for for much of the past 200 to 300 million years most of the size classes we have now have pretty much existed yes that there have been elephant sized creatures and there have been rhino sized creatures during the mesozoic there was a great diversity of very large creatures there were several different groups of dinosaurs that reached very large sizes that were similar to or even a bit higher than what we've seen in mammals and land mammals and then there were sauropods yes which were just 
way up there. There have been extraordinarily large ocean creatures all throughout the Mesozoic and throughout the Cenozoic. The blue whale is still the largest animal we know of that has ever existed. But there's not really... It's very tempting to, to assign a time period to why and when things got largest. But most likely what controls the, the you know, what, what determines when a organism is able to be the largest animal is probably less related to their environment and more related to the organism. Yes. It is probably not that there was something about the Mesozoic era that allowed dinosaurs to get so big, and more likely that it was something about the physiology and biology of dinosaurs that they were able to get that size. We talked about, probably maybe at some point, talked about one of the reasons it suggested that pterosaurs were able to get so much larger than birds is because, at least in part, because birds rely so much on having strong back legs, they always have extra weight in their leg muscles to get them off the ground, which means the bigger a bird is, the bigger its legs need to be, and the bigger its legs are, the less, the more weight it has, which means it can't be that particularly large, whereas pterosaurs are thought, thought to have taken off with their arms. Yes, which is the part they're using to fly. So all their muscle that they're using to take off is also helping them fly. So they were potentially, for that reason, able to get to that size. So it's not its not that there was a time period where everything got larger. It's that different animals have achieved this at different times. To say that were there times where the variety of notably large animals was higher or lower, that definitely we do see oh, throughout yes. Earth. That dips and rises where... There's not many big animals during this time because we're just after an extinction or the environment's particularly harsh. And And then another time where there's just big animals all over the place. The late Cretaceous saw the biggest sauropods, many of the biggest dinosaurs of other groups, some of the biggest ocean creatures. Mm -hmm. And part of that might just be that they had been without an enormous extinction event for quite some time. Yeah, that may just be a pattern of life that if if things are staying pretty much stable, eventually you just start getting big oddities like that more commonly. It could be. Now to Harry's other the other part of the question, how likely is it that there was something this big, so comparable to our largest organisms today, in the past that we haven't found yet? Very. Oh yeah. We just just uh this this oh we didn't talk about it. <laughs> there was a news article that came out that I considered for my news <laughs> of a blue whale fossil. Yeah, from, I think it was 15 million years old. That was more or less the same size as a modern blue whale. Well, and that's to get to use the two examples uh, that Harry used, the blue whale and the tree. Both of these are tricky when it comes to fossilizing. Aquatic animals are very hit and miss. Especially if, open water aquatic animals. Yeah, if you came into shallows and then those <clears throat> shallows dry up, all right, we're going to find you. If you're out in the deep ocean and that's the only place you hang out, like blue whales tend to do, you may never fossilize except for the one in, you know, who knows how many. And a tree, most of our plant fossils are like, Seeds and pollen and leaves. Yeah. So we're Petrified not... wood is not super common. And 
even if we did, it's hard to tell from a section how massive or how tall. So, and and huge animals like this are uncommon. Yes, they are. It is uncommon that animals evolve to that size, or that plants or fungi or whatever evolve to that size. And the bigger an animal is, the smaller their population tends to be. Yep. So you don't have a lot of them dying very often. So is it likely there were other blue whale-sized organisms, marine reptiles, other mm-hmm. whales in the past? Oh, yeah. I would oh, not oh. be at all surprised if we found... that. That's something I'd be almost willing to bet on, that there's something else out there that, if not isn't as big, is at least close. The question of how, when, and why certain organisms reach enormous sizes at different times in different places over Earth history is could be a whole episode. Yes. If you want us to do it, let me know. I'd love to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks, Harry, for that question. Yeah. We appreciate a very, very thought-provoking question. Very, no, it's I like it because it, it was kind of the reverse of the typical, why was everything so big in the past? It was, was everything particularly big at one point in the past? Right, right. I like that. Yeah. I like that. That was, that was a fun angle to come at that topic. And with all of that, I think we can wrap this episode up. I think we can bring it to a close. I think we've done it. As our typical sign-off, to remind you, if you have questions about this episode, contact us. If you have suggestions for things we should have talked about or you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. If there's something you want us to talk more about, let us know. You can message us on email, on social media. If you have a carrier pigeon and you can get it to us somehow, I welcome it. We release episodes every fortnight so keep your ears out for that keep your ears out for the kai june starting on the first yes check out the blog post when it comes up oodles of links to be seen look at the link for that time scavengers post in the episode description and i i think that's it i think we are good so thanks for listening hope it was interesting i i i Enjoyed this episode, but man, there was so much I would have loved to have talked about that I knew before I even started recording that we wouldn't oh, get yeah. to. So this subject will return, like the uh, like like the Marvel movies. <laughs> this yes, ancient behavior in the fossil record will return. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, take care, everyone. Take care of yourself. Behave yourselves. Behave yourselves. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Outro music. <laughs> I was trying to think of something and just couldn't. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.